Welcome to Ancient Heroes, where we explore the mysteries and myths of the ancient world. I'm your host, Patrick Garvey. You can find the show notes and learn more about ancient history at ancientheroes.net. I'm here today with Edward Dolnick, who is an American author and researcher, formerly the chief science writer at the Boston Globe, whose work has been featured in the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times Magazine, and the Washington Post, among many others. He's the author of, of multiple nonfiction books involving history, art, science, and adventure. And his brand new book is called The Writing of the Gods, The Race to Decode the Rosetta Stone. And I believe that book is out now on Amazon, correct? Yeah, as of yesterday. Awesome. Yeah, so it truly is brand new. And I was looking back at some of your different book titles, and you've covered a lot of different nonfiction kind of history subjects, adventures, interesting things that have happened. Um, And my first question to you is, why did you decide to focus in on this story around the Rosetta Stone? What led you to this uh, subject to write a book on? Well, the Rosetta Stone is is really famous, um, but I I didn't really know anything more about it than ordinary people did. I knew it had to do with hieroglyphs, um, but actually I'd understood it all wrong. I thought as soon as you found it, that was the key, and now you knew what was going on in Egypt and it was all easy. I pictured it was like if a spy in World War II picked up a note and it said the D-Day invasion is going to be on June 6th, that, that everything was here. But it turned out um, it wasn't like that at all. It, it, it started you on the way to deciphering, but it took 20 years to figure out what was going on after they found it. I, I had no idea. No. It, I, yeah, I haven't. I didn't know that either. I figured it was just like a, you know, they had, well, I don't know. I don't know what I, I don't know what I thought. I thought it was a, uh, it was self-evident, you know, I guess what the translation was. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's what I had pictured, but, but it was way harder. I, I, it dawned on me how hard it would be. I was in a Thai restaurant um, trying to figure out what to eat. And, and I was looking at the choices and one was pod Thai and another was pod CU. And it dawned on me, okay, so somewhere in this Thai writing next to the English must be pod because these things both say that. And so where is that? And, and then I thought, okay, so if you did figure that out, then what? You'd have all these squiggles and you don't know the language and what would you do? And so it dawned on me, if I couldn't even solve that tiny mystery, how in the world did these guys solve the biggest, the most important deciphering mystery of them all? So then I started to look at it and it turned out it took 20 years, as we say, and it pitted these two rival geniuses. So it was clear that there's really a story there. What was going on? So let's start at the very beginning then with how well what i guess with what 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 is the rosetta stone really i mean what like what is the object itself like and how was it initially dis- rediscovered so it's it's a big stone kind of like a headstone in a cemetery mm-hmm. it weighs about a thousand pounds and it's four or so feet tall um and when it was discovered there were there were the French were in Egypt at that time. There was all kinds of battles going on. We can talk about that. But the French were rebuilding a fort. They had taken this fallen down fort over the years, and they had all these stones to assemble in place to make it strong and sturdy again. And some workman comes up to the soldier in charge of this 
And he says, this stone over here has got all kinds of scratches and things on it. Could that be anything? And, and the story might well have ended there, but the officer in charge here was smarter than, than a lot of people. And he, he looked at it and he said, Jesus, that, that, that really is something. Um, and what it was, there's different kinds of writing on this, on this stone. It's called the Rosetta Stone because Rosetta was the name of the town where this fort was. Mm. Um, on the top are 14 lines of hieroglyphs, the, the famous things you see, birds and snakes and triangles and circles. And then there's some mysterious uh, writing in the middle that nobody recognized at all. And then at the bottom, and this was the thing they were thrilled at, was Greek, a bunch of lines in Greek, because people knew how to read Greek. And so they figured at once, well, why would you write three messages on the same stone unless they said the same thing in different languages? So, so now they were all excited. Egypt was this astonishing mystery for everyone in the world. Egypt had been the most important country in the world from about 3000 BC to about zero, to about Cleopatra. That's 30 centuries they ruled the world. You know, we're coming up to three centuries in America. They had 30s. Um, and in all that time, they built all these buildings and all of them were, were inscribed like mad, every single surface with hieroglyphs, hmm. but nobody knew what they said. So, they, so why'd they build all this? What was all that about? Who were they? What was going on? Um, nobody had any idea. And now they find this stone. They find it in 1799. Um, so it's after thousands of years after Egypt. And Egypt has been a mystery all that time. And they think, wow, this is going to be the key to it. We're going to find out who these strange people were, what that, what that mighty, powerful culture was all about. Here's the answer to it. And so people are, are incredibly excited and desperate to translate this thing. And they start racing to, to figure it out. Do they, and so they discovered this in Egypt and were, was it the Egyptians that, that made this stone? Do we know why they did it or what? So from the Greek, you could tell that the stone was written in Egypt, in ancient Egypt. It said uh, a date that corresponds to 196 BC, mm. so towards the tail end of of Egypt's run. Yeah, um, but it was written. It was written in ancient Egypt um, in these three different um, ways of writing, as I say. And they read the Greek, which they can read, and the scholars are incredibly excited. This is going to solve this mystery once and for all. And what they're hoping it'll say when they read the Greek is. Here's, here's a message, and we wrote it three ways in, in easy peasy, just translate it. Yeah. But when they start reading the Greek, it doesn't say that at all. It says, uh, this statue was put up by the Pharaoh Ptolemy, that was his name, and Ptolemy is so great, and Ptolemy is so powerful, and Ptolemy is so mighty. And it goes on and on like that, all this chest thumping about Ptolemy, but it doesn't say anything about three languages. And so they're reading these, these first deciphers, are reading along in dismay. What's what's this? It's not it's not saying what we want. It's just saying Ptolemy's so great, and they keep reading and they keep reading. Ptolemy's so great. He's this. He's that. He's he's so wonderful. And I think, wow, we're nearly we're nearly at the end of this. It hasn't. But then, almost at the very end, it says, and because Ptolemy's so great, we want to build stone. Uh, figures just like this one and put them at temples throughout the land that will say in three different languages so everybody can understand it just how great and how mighty Ptolemy is. 
So it really does say that it's three languages and they're just the same. So mm -hmm. now there's there's incredible excitement. It's This is really going to be it. it. It promises. It's the same message in three languages. And one of them we can read in the, the top one, the hieroglyphs is the one we care about. So, so now we're there. Let's just set to work. We can read Greek, hear something else. Let's go. And, and you said that there was a middle language that they didn't know what it what it was? Yeah, there's a middle thing that wasn't hieroglyphs and wasn't Greek. And that turned out to be this red herring that led them astray. And that's what made lots of the trouble. What it was, hieroglyphs, it turns out, they're, they're birds and they're snakes, as I say. And so to write that way, it's slow. It takes, it's a lot of trouble. You would only do it for for big monuments or for like above the Supreme Court or that kind of thing. And for ordinary language, they had kind of a, a pared down version of those hieroglyphs. So if the real hieroglyph was a bird with feathers and a beak and all this, you would use a kind of shorthand symbol that was a quick outline of it. And that's what the middle was. It was short. They thought it was a new language entirely, but it turned out not to be. It was a kind of shorthand of the hieroglyphs. Mm. But that led people to say, oh, this doesn't look as, as weird as hieroglyphs. We'll start here. And that was the wrong place to start. It would be as if you were trying to read English, but instead of reading a book, uh, an English book, you started with a shorthand book. You'd, you'd never figured out that way. Direct. Okay. So, okay. So they discovered, so the French were the ones who discovered, is that right? The French were the ones yes. who discovered the stone. And then from there, you know, is it is it immediately evident that this is a kind of a game changing type of situation? How do how do the kind of what what happens from there as far as you know um, cracking the code and like the you said a race basically starts and how how does that kind of initially originate? What happens is that at the time they find this the stone it's seventeen ninety nine the two superpowers in the world are France and England. Mm -hmm. And they're fighting all over the world at this time. And one of the places that they're battling is Egypt. And so the French are there, the, the English are there, the winner is going to take Egypt and they think that will be valuable. Um, early on, um, things are going, going the French way and they're the ones who find the Rosetta Stone. But, but in the course of time, the English win that war and they say to the French, you know, thank you very much. We'll take uh, all your trophies. We'll take the things you found, including the Rosetta Stone. And so if you go to see it today, the Rosetta Stone is in the British Museum in London. In fact, it's their biggest tourist attraction. It has been ever since they got it. Uh, and, and France doesn't have it, even though they're the ones who found it. But nobody could read it. And, and so part of the reason for this drama is the English snatch it from the French, but since nobody can read it, there's this big battle. Okay, the English are saying, we've taken it and we'll, we'll read it and so we'll have everything. And the French say, well, you grabbed it from us, but you're such dummies, you don't even know how to, how to read what you've got. We'll figure it out and then we'll at least get the glory even though you grabbed it away from us. So, so the two, it turns out there's an English genius and a French genius and they're both racing to decipher it partly because they want to do it and partly because they want their country to outdo the rival country. Well, and it's, I actually was at the British museum probably about three years ago and it's, and you know, and it's, this is one of the great museums of the world and, and it has some of the, uh, so many uh, artifacts from Egypt. And I remember being there 
and and still being like, is this real? Is this the Rosetta Stone I've been hearing about? Like, I still almost was like, is this actually it, or is this a copy, or is this you know? I still almost didn't believe that it was the. Uh, yeah, the it is that. That's it, and it's it's the most popular exhibit in the museum. In right. fact, for the first couple of hundred years they had it, you could go right up to it and everybody put trace their finger along it and oh. it started to wear out the hieroglyphs. Now you can't probably, you couldn't get right to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, okay, so you talked about, uh, you have these two geniuses who are, and I, I guess this is something that's very, it's very interesting to me. It almost reminds me of like the United States versus Soviet Union in chess or something where you have these like genius people who are trying to solve these problems, but it's almost like there's some sort of, you know, national pride at stake or something, um, or it's a competition. Um, and, and, you know, who, I guess, who, uh, who were these individuals from um, England and France? And how did they go about trying to, trying to decode this mysterious were they archaeologists? Were they code breakers? Were they who who were they? This your your analogy about the Soviet Union and the U.S. and chess—that's exactly on target. That's what it's like. It's so you might think a chess game. Who cares? But a while back, that became this giant thing, and it yeah. showed which system was better. So you're right. It was just just like that. It wasn't that people cared ahead of time about deciphering and all this, but but it was this great mystery and now now the rivalry and so that that amped up the stakes mm. so these two geniuses as i say were really really different from one another um one of them was english his name was thomas young he was a physicist by training and this incredible all-around genius people kind of a leonardo da vinci type there's a biography of him called the man who knew everything uh, whatever problem he took on he he just solved like mad. He was way ahead of everybody else. Um, it wasn't that he was especially interested in hieroglyphs. He was just interested in, in puzzles. If you can't figure it out, come to me. And, and he was this kind of brain for hire. Um, the Frenchman was named Champollion. He was, um, he was only interested in Egypt. He didn't care about anything else. Um, and so they were really different. Thomas Young, the Englishman, is this cool, uh, kind of uh, sneery, above-it-all character. And Champollion is this super emotional, dramatic person. He's prone to fainting fits. Every day of his life is the greatest day or the worst day. He's always raising his fist and shout. Uh, Thomas Young thinks Egypt was this crazy place with weird superstitions, and they believed in a million gods. And what was that all about? And Champollion thinks this is the mightiest empire the world has ever known. I can't wait to learn all about it. So Thomas Young wants to solve a puzzle. Champollion wants to, to dive into a culture. Mm. Um, so really different approaches, but they've got the same mystery. Here's, here's these symbols. What do they mean? I wonder, so did either of them have a existing like expertise in Egyptian culture or anything like that? Well, at this point, nobody in the world well, did yeah. because there had been people who'd gone there and they came back and they said, there's these crazy things, the pyramids and there's the Sphinx, and but nobody knew what it was about. Why had they done it? But both of them um, 
were amazing linguists. They were both child prodigies. They had been. Uh, they both spoke all these languages. Um, and starting as kids, uh, they knew by the time they were four or five, they'd polished off Greek and Latin, and they moved on to Persian and Hebrew and Arabic and, and Aramaic. And so, so they were prepared in the sense that as much as a person could know about languages, including dead languages, they knew. Um, but there wasn't such a thing as, as Egyptian culture or history. I mean, even the basics that they were called pharaohs or nobody knew anything yet. They'd learned everything we know, we know now because they finally showed how to read it. <laughs> yeah, I'm asking questions. That are, the question doesn't even make sense um, because, you know, at the time, this was before the modern era of archaeology. Um, you know, uh, I mean, I'm sure there were people discovering stuff, obviously, and, and trying to study these ancient cultures, but um, it was it was the early days of all of that. Yeah, this is this is this is all brand new stuff. Uh, pe people just have no idea. Um, in that Egypt was, you know, three thousand years old, something like that. That was just about inconceivable. That right. that time had stretched back so far. Nobody knew what what to make of it at all. Well, and going back to the um, to the chess analogy, you know, these days we have, uh, you know, in my iPhone, I can download a chess app that can play at a grandmaster level, you know, and I wonder, you know, um, with the, with these code breaking kind of situations, this was, uh, you know, they didn't have computers to work with, to try to solve these things. Um, and, you know, it was all, I guess, just, uh, you know, their own kind of, um, in, uh, problem solving capabilities as human beings, what um what was the state of code breaking and and solving these kinds of puzzles? I mean, do did you get into kind of like the the actual methods that they were trying to use or kind of how they approach this stuff? Yeah, one of the terrific things about this story, and one of the things that really drew me in, is that you can follow, you can you can put yourself really closely into this code breaking. You can see what they did if you read. A typical code-breaking story like World War II and the Enigma Machine and the Nazis, um, those, those are wonderful stories, but the code-breaking is really complicated. It's this hard, mathy stuff about analyzing the frequency of this symbol or that symbol. Mm. And if you look at a page of the Enigma code, a layman can't see anything but, but letters. It's, it's gibberish. Um, but with hieroglyphs, because they're pictures, it's it's this seems like this approachable thing. It, it's much more like solving a, a crossword or a Sudoku than a, than decoding a, a computer program or something. You can really see what they did, um, and so you can you can get into the heart of it, and, and you can see when they get it right and where they're going wrong. It's it's actually it's actually really fun to dive in. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm I don't have a super mathematical mind, but I've always been so fascinated by people that do and by people that not even just mathematical, but just the, the reasoning ability and, you know, the code breaking stuff. Um, I remember in the um, movie, a beautiful mind where, 
um, oh, I wish I could remember the actual historical guy's name, but it's Russell Crowe in the movie. But he's, you know, breaking these code. The military is coming to him as a professor at MIT or something to help break these codes that they're intercepting during the Cold War or something like that. Yeah. Um, um, it, there's a lot of analogies between this deciphering and code breaking, but it turns out that they're not quite the same. And the deciphering is even harder because when you're code breaking, you actually know a fair bit about, about the message that you're, that you're looking at. For instance, in World War II, if you if you broken some or got some German code, you knew even though you couldn't read it yet, it was going to be in German. Same mm -hmm. if you had a code from Japanese, um, and people spoke German and spoke Japanese. Whereas with these dead languages like Egyptian, nobody has spoken Egyptian in two thousand years, so it's a way way harder thing. And, and the military codes are they're kind of a puzzle, although a super hard one. You know, when you're a kid, you write those codes, A equals one, B equals two, and that kind of thing. And you can, you can write your name, Patrick, you could write, instead of P, you could write whatever that's 17, or then the A would be one, and you could write, you know, your name as a secret code. They're much harder, real codes, but that's, that's the principle of them. They're right. based on some kind of substitution like that. Um, and you can sort that out. It's so for these World War II guys, like you're talking about, a beautiful mind. Their challenge is essentially to do the world's hardest Rubik's cube yeah. while the world is on fire and a clock is ticking, yeah. and you better do it. But but there's some there's some trick to it that right. this follows rules. For the deciphering, you're trying to learn about a language, and languages are much messier mm. than 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 codes. Um, people can say things in a million different ways and it means the same thing or mm, they yeah. can use weird words like you know like if it, in an ordinary english message you could say she felt blue and that means sad but you'd have to know something about english to know what does blue have to do with sad or you say he was head over heels in love but head over heels is perfectly i mean that's you'd figure you're always head over heels oh yeah um, yeah so so language is much trickier and harder to understand than, than these kind of uh, numerical codes. So the decipherers had actually a harder challenge because they had to think their way, not just solve a puzzle, but think their way into a culture, into a culture that had been disappeared for 2000 years. Did they, um, and so I'm fascinated by this. And now that I'm talking to you, it's, I've, you know, the fact this took 20 years to do, I mean, that's a long time. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And, and they thought it was going to take two weeks. Right. Um, so what they thought, have you ever been to those kind of uh, restaurants that have international tourists? And so it says like roast chicken with French fries. Mm. And then it also says uh, poulet roti uh, avec frites. And sure. maybe it says it in German too. And so they thought that's what the Rosetta Stone was going to be like. Here's, here's the same thing exactly. Um, but it turned out, if they'd known this at the start, they would have just gone home and crawled under the covers and given up. It turned out that the three things are pretty much the same, but they're not exactly the same. It's like three friends' description of the same movie. Mm. Um, so, so you can't go word for word. Um, so that, that makes it hard. But what makes it harder than that is that uh, imagine trying to to read 
to decipher Chinese, say, I'm trying to think of something which has an alphabet or doesn't have a familiar alphabet. So you look at this page of Chinese um, and you're trying to read it if you didn't speak Chinese, that would be really hard. Where do you start and how do you sound out things? But then imagine if it wasn't just that you didn't speak Chinese, but that nobody spoke Chinese. Yeah. So that would be incredibly hard. Or, or, or to say it another way, Suppose it's it's thousands of years from now, and there is no more United States of America. Nobody's spoken English in a long time. Nobody knows how to read it. Nobody knows what it is. And some geniuses come along, and they figure out how to sound it out. And they say, here's something. It's, here's a symbol C, and here's a symbol A, and here's a symbol T. If you put them together, I bet that sounded like K-et. Maybe you could say that, but how would you ever figure out that K-et? met a little animal with fur and whiskers. Yeah. Um, so if you think of it that way, 20 years makes sense. What would you do? How do you get started? How do you make sense of these squiggles? How do you, if you sound them out, what do the sounds correspond to? How do you do it? Did they, did these, well, okay. Gosh, I have so many questions about this. So did these, did these geniuses, were they working, um, as individuals or did they have teams or offices or researchers helping them or was it just kind of like their own odyssey they're both uh incredible loners Mm. um young the englishman by temperament because he he just doesn't like to be slowed down by other people and champollion because he's too grouchy and too intense to be a team player just just leave me alone so they're each working alone. Um, Young is in England, uh, Champollion is in Paris, and neither of them knows about the other, in fact. And then a strange thing happens. Um, Champollion writes a letter to the Royal Society, the Society of Scientists in England, and he says, I've got a copy of the Rosetta Stone I'm working on, but but it's not good enough. A couple of places, it's all smudged. I can't read it. I need you to send me a better copy. And he sends it to the Royal Society um, because that's the most famous scientific society of the time. But it turns out that was the wrong place to send it to. They didn't have anything to do with the Rosetta Stone. The Rosetta Stone was uh, some different learned society. But the guy who got this letter from Champollion at the Royal Society happened to be Thomas Young. He was in charge of correspondence with foreign scientists. So he gets this letter from this guy, Champollion, that he's never heard of that says, I'm working on the Rosetta Stone. I'm trying so hard to decipher it. I need a better copy. And Young, the very person who gets this letter is his arch rival. It's this crazy thing. It's like in some superhero movie. If if you uh, pick up your phone and call the villain and say, here's what I'm doing. These two guys don't want to be in touch, but that's how they first cross paths. That's how they first hear that the other one exists and is working on the same problem. And that even intensifies the race. And so that intensifies the race. They didn't, there was no thought of maybe we should work together on this. (laughs) <laughs> no, uh, probably for your chess reasons that uh, you know, the U.S. champion and the Russian guy aren't going to say, you know, we're both into chess. We can we can both do it. Yeah, we can figure out the best way to play. We don't have to be rivals. Right. No, no instead, it makes each of them say, I was working hard, but I'm going to work harder. Interesting. Did they, you know, it, it strikes me that as you as you give all this context, 
Um, it strikes me that, you know, if, if this were put in front of me, um, that I might be drawn to branch beyond just the stone and look at, you talked about diving into the culture and understanding, you know, that I would want to see the other hieroglyphics and, you know, because you're working on such a limited, I mean, I don't know how long the Rosetta Stone is, but I think you said it was just what three lines for each language. And so did they, were they using other uh, materials? Were they going to Egypt at all? Um, and, and I also assume there was no one in Egypt. There was no thread of any knowledge about this stuff among native people in Egypt. Right. The, the Egyptians themselves um, weren't much interested in these ancient Egyptians because um, the present-day Egyptians were, were Arabs who were deeply religious, and they thought that the ancient Egyptians were these pagan uh, ancestors, and that wasn't, that wasn't a good thing. So they, they were using these marvelous temples as, as uh, junkyards and, and that kind of thing. They didn't have, they didn't have much interest. Um, you're, you're right, exactly as you say, there wasn't enough writing on the Rosetta Stone to just stick with that. If you're, if you're decoding or deciphering, you need a lot of text. Like if you had guessed that um, in our World War II example, that a certain word meant attack, say, because attack is a word that could make sense in a military thing, and, and it would have two letters next to each other and um, A-T-T, but, but lots of words have two letter, it could be Google, it could be, you know, effect. There's a million words that have double letters. So you need a lot of text to see if your guess is right. So, so yes, they were both young and Champollion saying to every traveler they could think of, every museum, if you've got any of these hieroglyphs, just, just let me look at them because I need more, the, the, the more the better. Interesting. So they were trying to, you know, have some amount of volume to like, to make these comparisons. Was there, you know, so the way that you're describing the Rosetta Stone, um, in that it's not this perfect, uh, it's not this perfect translation of each language. Um, it must not have been made for this purpose. What, like, so going back to some of your comments in the beginning, if you were making something for later people to be able to translate, you would have to be really careful about making sure that it was all uh, synonymous or whatever. Um, but that, that sounds like that really wasn't the case. Right. No, no, this was, this was meant for the time. This was for every, every Egyptian who would come into this temple, he would see here is the mighty Ptolemy. He rules over all this land. Um, the notion that down the road, some people we've never heard of will come along and read it. Um, that wasn't um, that wasn't what they were. The reason it had Greek in the first place is that Alexander the Great, who was Greek, had conquered Egypt at about this time. So there were Greek rulers. So Greek was uh, a language that the powerful and the ruling spoke. Um, right. But Egyptian was the common language. And so you would you would want them both. Well, and I, and I don't want to, um, I want to make sure people listening, if they're interested in this story, get your book and see the whole, you know, see how it, it all plays out and who is victorious in this uh, rivalry. And I guess my, my question um, 
to you is, you know, ultimately we know that the Rosetta Stone was solved, I guess, is, you know, is the right word for it. Um, uh, do we, did that actually grant us a, a somewhat uh, comprehensive understanding of, of ancient Egyptian language? Yeah, we know um, a giant amount about Egypt now. Um, they, they've, now that they can read it, they've found all these just millions of things, uh, official proclamations of on this day, the Egyptian army invaded, but, but also love poems and uh, a letter from, uh, from uh, an intern essentially at a, at a job to his boss saying, you treat me like a donkey. Whenever there's something to be carried, you say, where's the donkey? But when everybody else goes out for beer, you never invite me. Um, you know, we found that there's love poems. There's there's a will from a woman who's 80. She says, uh, I did everything for my children. And now these ingrates, here I am old and sick, and they don't care for me at all. I'm not going to leave them anything. You can hear all these voices, um, some of them fancy, some of them just regular griping. Um, and you can read it because for, for the first time, we've got this peak at an ancient culture. And what happened? The Egyptians were one of the first to invent writing. Um, and they saw it as this miraculous thing. And we're so familiar with it that we take it for granted. But until somebody figured out how to, how to write things, which was in history recently, until then, um, somebody would live and die and they'd people would remember for a while. And that was it. Writing was the first time that stories and memories could get could be preserved. Um, and that that happened, it wasn't just another invention. It was this astonishing invention. It was like inventing memory. This was the first time the world didn't kind of dissolve when someone died. You could you could have these these relics of faraway places and faraway people. And that was all new. And so the Rosetta Stone really did unlock kind of Egyptian culture to a much greater extent than before this particular object was decoded. Yeah, this this was the key to this whole culture. We we, we now know scads about them. And part of the reason we know so much is that the Egyptians uh, believed in life after death, um, like like a lot of uh, a lot of present day people do. But they believed in it in a very specific, uh, I was gonna say down to earth way, which is kind of a funny way to talk about heaven, but your life would go on as it had. You would eat and drink and marry and fall in love and, and throw a ball for the dog to chase and go swimming and have parties. Um, and so they believed all that. And, and so they brought everything with them. They had their dogs mummified and they had their tennis rackets or closest thing to it and their food. They buried themselves with pies and cakes and bottles. Um, and so because they believed in this eternal life, we have a lot of pictures of, from them of what life looked like. Um, so if, if they just thought you died and then it was over, we wouldn't know so much, but they, they thought you could bring it all with you. And so we know what their clothes look like and their, their books look like and their, their mirrors and jewelry and sports stuff and games. They packed it all, or at least the rich ones, um, packed it all in their tombs with them. 
Well, and, and in terms of the higher the hieroglyphics in, in ancient Egypt, I mean, like you said, you had what 30 centuries of of um of this ancient Egyptian culture. And it's we've said it on podcasts before, but a guess has made the point that we're closer to the days of Cleopatra than she was to when the pyramids were built because it was such a long expanse of time. I mean I assume the language and stuff must have changed some and that there must be, you know, that the, that the language of 2000 BC wasn't exactly the same as what was being used in a hundred BC or something was, was the, um, you know, in, in your book and in your research and stuff, did you get into kind of the, the, um, that level of, of kind of interest in the hieroglyphics and how it developed and what we know now and stuff? Well, you're exactly right about that. If you if you try to catch on to an Egyptian timeline, you, you do you do get vertigo, um, as you say. From Cle from the pyramids to Cleopatra, in all that time, Egypt ruled the world. But from the pyramids to Cleopatra is about as long as from Cleopatra to the Wright brothers. Mm. But but in that first stretch, it's all Egypt. They're they're just the only world power. Um, and as you say, languages do change. They changed a lot, and that was another part of what made this why this took twenty years. Because even you say speaking perfect English, if you looked at something from even a thousand years ago, like if you ever took a college course where they made you read Chaucer or Beowulf, you just about can't figure it out. The I letters look a little weird, but the words look almost completely weird. And yeah. that's a thousand years. As you say, this is, is 3,000. Um, so that's, that's another problem that um, not only is it a dead language, trying to understand Egyptian is trying to understand a dead language, but it's trying to understand uh, a language that had changed on its, on its long, long lifetime. When you went about... Um researching this i mean how do, how do you go about just on the the level of your craft and 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 what you're doing you've um i was looking at kind of your list of books and uh and i absolutely love the approach of taking these you know we reading about these long kind of general histories of things is can be quite boring and it it's totally different when you can focus in on some event or some problem or some adventure and then you get the context through that how do you go about uh writing a book like this i mean um you know uh wh where do you where do you start what is that process like for you well with a book like this um i want to write a book the kind of book that i like to read um so it can't be homework that's 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 deadly uh, if it feels like an assignment if it feels like a textbook or even if it feels like a wikipedia page um you don't want that it's got to be the kind of thing you would tell somebody if if you bumped it what are you working on well it's this crazy thing there's um so it has to be a story that that you're interested in um for me um I want to, I was interested in deciphering because of Sherlock Holmes stories and all this kind of thing. There, there's always some secret code or some serial killer has left some message and how do you yeah. do it? Um, so I wanted to know, and this was the greatest deciphering story of them all. And then when I found out it had rivalry and, and the way they figured it out was something that you could do, that you could follow. Mm. Um, 
I knew that was that was the story. And then another thing that was good for me, um, the books about Egypt mostly fall into two camps. There's these incredibly dry scholarly things that that you wouldn't read unless you had to, really tough going. And then there's a lot of nutty secrets of the mummies kind of thing, um, which I don't go for either. And so I wanted to write a book for, for smart people who didn't know the stuff already, who wouldn't say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it turns out hardly anybody does. Um, so, so there's, there's the main thing you want is a story, a yarn, and it's, it's a terrific story. Yeah, absolutely. I cannot wait to read it. I'll remind listeners that we're talking to Edward Dolnick about his absolutely brand new book. It's already getting good reviews. Uh, it's called The Writing of the Gods, The Race to Decode the Rosetta Stone. It looks great. I can't wait to read it. Um, is there anything else that you want to add uh, that we didn't talk about? Um, anything that you learned in this process that you were surprised by? Well, it was it was the twenty years that surprised me. Um, what What's fun is to uh, to look at how they did it, how they get started. What do you do first if if somebody gives you this thing and says, "Okay, you solved it." You think, "Okay, yeah. now what? How do you start?" I'll tell you the first thing they did, which was was. Um, kind of fun and that's what what set things along um they knew that the greek kept talking about ptolemy that was the name of the pharaoh and he was that was the most special thing in the greek and in the hieroglyphs there were certain places where there was a circle that enclosed certain of the hieroglyphs there were about half a dozen of those and they thought well the most special thing in the greek is the ptolemy and it looks like the most special thing in the in the hieroglyphs are these things that are circled Maybe they circled them because that's special, because that's the king's name. So, may, so what they tried to do first is match the symbols, the hieroglyphs in those ovals with the letters in the Greek that spelled out the king's name. Mm. That was just a guess that that would be the first. But it turned out to be exactly right. And that was the first kind of aha moment. And that was when they read the pharaoh's name, Ptolemy, in those ovals in the hieroglyphs, that was the first time in 2,000 years that anyone had read a hieroglyph. And now, now they did it. It was only one word, but one is a lot better than zero. And they had started. And so they're make, they're trying to figure out these sort of, they're trying to make these logical inferences and then somehow test. But it, the, the thing that's tricky is that if you, I could very easily see you going down a rabbit hole, if you don't get it right, and then you're going down a rabbit hole of trying to add the other pieces onto something that wasn't wasn't a correct inference. You, it could just be an endless. Yeah, I, I don't know if you ever do crosswords, um, but if you do, there's a lot. If if you try an answer in a crossword, um, if it's got the right number of letters, hmm. but turns out to be wrong, uh, that can really really mess things up. It takes a long time to figure out. Um, so there was that kind of, of gamble here always. You can't ever know for sure, so you make your best guess. But as you say, <laughs> could be that that best guess is going to get you in a lot of trouble down the road. Well, and so the, 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 um, the breakthrough you said with the Ptolemy name and comparing that, did that happen relatively early on in this 20-year span? Or was it later? That, that, that that's, that that's pretty early. Um, 
And so that that gives them hope um, that we've got this right. Maybe maybe we can match up, like if if the first hieroglyph in that thing is a picture of a lion and the first letter in Ptolemy's name is a certain Greek letter, maybe a lion stands for, for that letter. Um, but just as you say, how are we going to check that? In the way they, the first thing that happened, and this took a while, was somebody else sent along a different hieroglyphs. And this one, for reasons I won't get into, they had, re, they hoped had the name Cleopatra in it. Mm. And Cleopatra and Ptolemy have certain letters. They both have T's, they both have O's, they both have L's. And so you could match up like in a crossword. If I was right that this first one said Ptolemy, and I'm guessing that this one says Cleopatra, then certain of those Ptolemy symbols should turn up in the right place in the Cleopatra thing. Yeah. This and so they were all excited about, about that kind of thing. That's how they, uh, that's how they get underway. So it's, it's the world's highest stakes uh, crossword or Sudoku or something. Absolutely. Yeah. That's uh, and, and this stuff still is coming out in the news. I, um, you know, the, these, ex- these high profile examples of, codes and ciphers and all these things. I just saw something last week about someone's claiming they solved something the Zodiac killer had done for, you know, so this is, this stuff kind of captures people's it's, it's yeah. kind of the ultimate puzzle when so much is on the line, especially like an entire civilization's history is, uh, is on. The yeah. Line. It's great. stuff. Zodiac turns up in this, uh, in this Rosetta stone book too, in fact. Um, mm. So there's, yes, there's lots of, code breaking stories. Well, is there anywhere you want me to point listeners to, or that you'd like to point listeners to? I know that you have your own website um, uh, where you showcase all of your work um, and, and that your, uh, and that your book is now available on Amazon uh, to order. Um, is your website uh, just, I guess, give us your website or any social media or anything like that. that... Um, the web website is my name. It's edwarddolnick.net. But if people go to Amazon, they can read um, the beginning of the book and see if it's for them or not. Awesome. Um, or listen to the beginning. Um, it, it's quite a story. It, it really is fun. Okay. So it's on audiobook as well? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay. And so the book is called The Writing of the Gods, The Race to Decode the Rosetta Stone. I love the title. I love the subject. I can't wait to read it. This is, you know, uh, I, this is the kind of history stuff that I think um, is is the most is the most entertaining and the most fun to read. Um, and obviously, you've got the the you know credentials and everything to be doing it. So um, thank you, Edward, for talking to us. And uh, and yeah, hopefully we'll get to talk again sometime in the future about your next project. Well, I like that. Thanks a lot. Thanks to Derek Feischer for composing the music used in this episode. If you like the show, consider leaving us a review on iTunes or your podcast app. Until next time.